Those of you less than 40 don't appreciate the analogy or the idiom of a broken record, you know, where when the Spirit of the Lord, when the Spirit of the Lord, when the Spirit of the Lord, because the records used to have little grooves in them and the needle would fit in the groove and that's what would vibrate and turn into an electric current with the magnet and, and uh, I'm a broken record. I'm still stuck and, and uh, Brother Blair's message didn't, didn't help me any, but uh, you know, our carnal mind can fracture the body. It's just all there is to it. Carnal judgments. I mean, thinking that we've got the perspective, it, it produces factions. It, it's, it's why that whole thing in there where Paul said, you know, I don't judge even myself. He said, wait till the Lord comes, which doesn't mean the second coming of the Lord. It means wait till the Spirit comes. Wait till we have the mind of Christ and then weigh everything against that. Amen. And let, let him be the judge. But uh, when Brother Blair read there, some of y'all probably haven't heard it yet, but he read from uh, Isaiah 53. And one scripture, one part of it, when he, when he read it, it just really jumped out at me. And that's where he, he talks about that, you know, surely he bore our sorrows. He, he, he carried our iniquities you know, but we esteemed him stricken of God, smitten, afflicted. Of course, all of that's describing the, the, the passion of the Lord, but it's also exposing how easy it is to misjudge. Here he was, and yet we thought he was judged of God. We thought he was the sinner, you know. It's the same thing that happened with uh, Job's friends. They came and, you know, they expressed a lot of wisdom. I mean, we even quote a lot of stuff from them as if it's true. And it is. But they completely misjudged Job. And uh, I just, I had read some, some uh, scriptures and uh, one that struck me. It's a pretty cut and dried scripture right at the end of Romans 14, it says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And, and you know, the word faith is the same word as trust. It's, it's the same thing. Trust can be a verb or trust can be a noun. Faith is usually the noun version of trust or believe. So anything that's not of this trust, it's going to cause us to miss the mark. Something's going to go haywire. And the very next verse, right after he says that whatever is not of faith is of sin, he says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. And when I read that, I, I thought of Isaiah 53 and 4. You know, we ought to have the love of God who was hanging there, misunderstood misjudged and yet he was bearing he was bearing with that and that we who are strong ought to bear and, and you know a scruple which the word actually is weakness it's the same word that he translates otherwise we'll get to in just a second where he says we who are strong ought to to 
bear with those who are weak. It's the same word. But it, scruple is a, a proper translation there, as we'll see, because those that are weak in the faith, believe it or not, are the ones that usually have the most scruples. <laughs> and a scruple is something external or a principle that restricts behavior. Now, it can be good or it can be bad. But the command is there, and it's, it's talking about the, the love of God that is the perfect bond of peace. It's what overcomes everything else. If we're loving our brother, we just can't judge him. We can correct him, we can see the fault, but we're not going to, to judge. In the beginning of that chapter, uh, the very first verse, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things or doubtful disputations, the King James reads. You know, when it says receive the one weak in the faith, and he hasn't defined completely yet what weak in the faith means, but he says, when he says receive, that's almost like it can be interpreted as tolerate them. But the word, and here the New American Standard hits a home run, the word actually means more welcome. In the word, I think, was used in the Greek to bring them into your house. Make them your companion. It's far more than receive them, you know, but let's watch here. No, it's open your heart up of love. And when it says not to doubtful disputations or disputes over doubtful things, the New American Standard says... But welcome those weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. Notice we can have an ulterior motive. Oh yeah, well, here's someone that doesn't see things the way we do, and they're, they're weak in the faith, but we're going to bring them in so we can straighten them out. He says, don't let that be in your heart. Welcome them openly. Let the Spirit move and he'll, he'll take care of everything. The Amplified says, welcome them, but not to criticize his opinions or pass judgments on his scruples or perplex him with discussions. <laughs> it's really receiving someone in love. Now, the thing is, we think of someone weak in the faith as, you know, they're, they're trembling and they've got this problem and that problem. But actually, you know, Paul, what is it in fourth chapter, says specifically, you know, Abraham, who was not weak in his faith, trusted God completely. Didn't consider that his body was dead, but instead he knew that him who had promised was able to deliver. Weak in the faith is someone who, it's not weakness, which Paul says, in our weakness, he is made strong. Paul doesn't have a problem with weakness, but weakness in faith is a lack of trust, a lack of, of belief in, in, in God and, and that God is covering everything. And interestingly enough, as he goes on to describe these two, because he also in verse 10 says exactly the same thing as he says here in verse 2, let not him who eats despise or look down on him who does not eat and let him who does not eat 
Judge him who eats, for the Lord has received him. Who are you to judge another man? And he goes on and explains what he's talking about. One man will eat, the strong will eat anything, knowing Paul says in whatever it is, verse 12 or whatever, for I know everything's clean. Now, I'm not talking about things that a body may choose for identity. We're talking about righteousness sake here, okay? Religious scruples. And he says here, there's, there's two attitudes. The strong, he warns, don't look down upon them. Love them. To the weak, he says, don't judge. You would think that someone who's weak would be less likely to judge. <laughs> but the warning there, and he does the same thing in, in verse 10, the warning about the possibility of judging of missing the mark are people who have lots of religious scruples, lots of principles they live by. He defines that the weak are those who, for religious reasons, will not eat this. And who was it that misjudged Jesus? It was the Pharisees who had every scruple in the book. And they judged him, but we judged him stricken by God. This weakness of faith that then results in we've got all of these principles that we're going to live by because we really don't trust that God is in charge. It lends itself to carnal judgments. And that's really, I won't go into the whole chapter here. I I could pull a John MacArthur and do a a verse by verse here, but we've all got to go home and eat. And and, uh, amen. Amen. As a matter of that word, don't receive them to doubtful disputations, or as the, this one says, uh, disputes. The word there is exactly the same word as uh, translated in the other two places. It appears as discern. That means to resolve the issue. It's, it's the word where we're talking about the gifts of discerning the spirits. There, it's good. We're discerning. But he's saying, don't, don't have an attitude in you that's always trying to straighten out the other person. Let's wait till the Lord comes. You know, our witness is our unity. And our unity is in the Spirit. And the Spirit is love. And we want to love one another fervently and put on the bond of perfection. Loving one another. Amen. I'm so thankful to be in a place where we can feel the presence of God. Toward no matter what's happening, we can release ourselves like we did here. And God's in control. Amen. Well, there's all sorts of things we don't know. But together, we have the mind of Christ. So I'm not going to judge from my own mind. I'm going to let the Lord be in charge here. He's led us this, he's led us this far. He's going to continue to lead us. Amen. I've been away for, I think, four weeks, but I'd have to say I've been unplugged, too, because I did not hear any of the meetings. I didn't have the app, technical glitch, and I haven't heard anything, really. I don't know what's going on. But I felt like the Lord spoke something to me that I want to share about it, and I think it would fit from what the brothers just shared, and I'd like to share it. And it's just a simple story, and we all know it. And maybe I'm going to have a completely different take on it from the scriptures. But it's something that I I just felt powerfully when I was in 
Idaho, I sat there one night and kind of just shook and just felt that like what God wanted to do through all these things, you know, and, and I want to read it to you. And the first part of it is, it's a story really of, of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead and what led up to that and who were these people. And, you know, you read that and it usually comes across as this, you know, Jesus loved Lazarus, came and raised him from the dead. But there was a whole dynamic like behind the scenes going on there that I think Jesus was really trying to get to with the Jews. And, uh, you know, there's Martha, there's Mary, there's Lazarus. And apparently the Lazarus, Martha, Mary family were Pharisees. Pretty definitely Pharisees because um, they lived in Bethany. Like they were at the house of the Pharisee. And, and that was a later story. And it's actually recorded four times in the scriptures about where Mary, you know, anoints Jesus with the oil and dries his feet with her hair, which happened after Lazarus was raised from the dead. But interesting, you know, you know the conflict there with Mary and Martha. And, and uh, it seems that Mary, you know, she's the one who, who anointed Jesus with the oil She's also the one who sat at his feet at their house when he came to their house for dinner. So the two sisters, is what I'm saying, are very different people. Matter of fact, there's four versions of her anointing the oil, and one says it's at Simon the leper's house, and it's at the Pharisee's house. But it says that he said to Jesus, you don't even know what manner of sinner this woman is. So what I'm saying is that Mary seemed to be the kind of the outlaw of the family, or the misfit of the family, what she did. And, and I just want to set that stage, whereas Martha's quite different. She's what Brother Howard described. And so here, here are the scriptures. And I'm just going to say some things in between, because we're going to, it's, I think it's going to go somewhere exciting. Now it happened as, as they went that he entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him, him into her house, or brother Mary and Martha, and she had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. And we know what's going on. We all know the scripture. Mary is more interested in what Jesus is saying. But Martha was distracted by much serving, and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Therefore, tell her to help me. Seems like Martha's a Pharisee who likes everything perfect. And she likes everything together in the house. And this probably younger sister Mary, she's never pleased with. Mary's kind of this outlaw and like, would you tell her to get with me? And Jesus answered and said to Martha, 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 you are, you are worried and troubled about many things. But one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken away from her. That ends that right there. Interesting. He rebukes her, basically. He rebukes her sense of order and perfection and getting it all together, right? So then the scriptures move on to the death of Lazarus. Now, a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. But he says, John says something here. He says, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother was Lazarus was sick. He jumps forward to something that's going to happen, but he, he's kind of showing the characters that are going to be on the scene here. 
This is the Mary who, you know, sat at his feet. This is the Mary who didn't apparently have it together. But she was the one who uh, later anointed him with oils. But he, he inserts that from later in the gospel. Therefore, the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick, Lazarus. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two more days in the place where he was. Then afterwards, he said, let's go. Why? You know, it's like he knew the kind of people he was dealing with. And he knew he could go, and they've seen him done miracles before. And he could show up, and he could do a miracle, and somehow it might even be kind of written off, you know? And it's like he said, I'm going to bring them something that's going to shake their little world up. I'm going to shake it. It's, it's going to be different than what they're expecting. And he does, you know, we know the story. He doesn't go up. Then he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea. The disciples said, Rabbi, lately the Jews have sought to stone you. And they have a conversation about that. He said, Jesus, then he goes on to say, Lazarus, our friend, sleeps. I'm going to go wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death, but they thought he was speaking about him taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, that you may believe. Nevertheless, let's go. It's like Jesus had a real plan here. He wanted him like good and dead, you know, so to speak. He really did. He was going to bring them something beyond anything, you know. He's going to bring them something that's going to shake the whole Pharisaic order, legalism, the whole thing. He's after it. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Perfect. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. You know what that is? Listen to this. Who are they? It's, this is a Pharisee funeral, is what it is. It's very different. This is like the legalism of these sitting now for seven days, and the sisters are there. And Think of the other funeral he went to, of the, of, I mean... He went to the sick girl. Was that later on? He came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, a Pharisee. There's another place in the Bible. And saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead. She's sleeping. And they ridiculed him. He was outside the box. And he put them all outside. Listen to this scripture from Amos. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, God of hosts, the Lord, there is wailing in all the plazas and in all the streets. They say, alas, alas. They also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. So that's who they've called down from Jerusalem. They've called down to Lazarus's funeral, professional mourners. And they came, you know, they wail with you. They cry with you. So here he is. He comes outside Bethany. And then Martha, as soon as she heard Jesus was coming, she went out to him, but Mary stayed in the house. 
Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. Now, is that a plea or is that a rebuke? It's like last time he rebuked her and said, now listen, your sister's doing the right thing. So she comes and kind of rebukes him. But even now, I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. I know. But where were you? He's dead. Like, it's finished. It's done. He said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, oh, I know. He'll rise again, the resurrection of the last day. Because she's a Pharisee, and the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. She's towing the line. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. She didn't answer his question, did she? She stand in her Pharisaic legalist ground, okay? So, when she had said these things, so she talked to Jesus, Mary's back at the house. Here's what it says. She went her way secretly. Why? What is going on? What's the secrecy about? Where's the openness? She went her way secretly. She's got an agenda. She's, she's steeped in this Phariseeism. And she's holding on to it tight. She called Mary, her sister, saying, the teacher has come calling for you. Is it that she wanted to head her sister off at the pass kind of thing? What did she share with her secretly? She said something to her. She wanted to make sure Mary's on board with everything, that she's not going to do something crazy like go wash his feet with oil or something, or something, you know, that my little sister's kind of known for, those kind of things. Or As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. That's Mary. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw Mary rose up quickly, they went out and followed her saying, she's going to the tomb to weep there. Now they're professionals now. This is our job. We're being paid to come down and weep with her. Let's go to the tomb. Let's weep. This is as dead as dead can be. Then when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him, she fell down at his feet, unlike Martha. But she said the same thing, Martha, she's towing the line too now. She said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have would not have died. And the, the thing is, is like, you get the feeling from these scriptures, like Jesus, his burden is for them, you know. It's for Lazarus, his friend, Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. I think his groaning, it's not for the death of Lazarus, it's for these people and their unbelief. I mean, he's just like, that's the thing, the burden he felt. I think he was totally confident that I can go there and raise Lazarus from the dead. I can go and heal him. I can raise him from the dead. It's going to be okay. But the groaning and the burden was for, the, the, was for his family. It was for the Pharisees that are there. 
He said, where have you laid him? They said to him, come and see. Here's the shortest scripture in the, in the Bible, right? Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, oh, see how he loved him. Lazarus. I think they were mistaken. He loved them. But I think he loved Martha and Mary and all of them. And that's what he's doing. And that's his plan. And some of them said, couldn't. You know, they said, oh, see how he loved them. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also kept this man from dying? That's where they were at. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone laying against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. He could have played it safe, couldn't he? He could have said, okay, I just want to go pray up by this stone. And, you know. But he's standing back, and everybody's gathered around. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he has been dead for four days. He's, she's trying to keep a lid on it. She's trying to hold this in. Let's keep this under control. This is past the time when you can do anything about it. You know, you may have been able to heal people, but he is dead for four days and stinks. Okay, let's, sorry, now let, okay, this is nice. Let's, so she really doesn't believe in the resurrection. And she really doesn't believe. But Jesus turned and said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? It wasn't just a play. He's trying to get through something with the legalists. Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was laying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I know you always hear me, because of the, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe you sent me. Now when he said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth and Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. And you know, when we came in here today, boy, I felt like the stone rolling away. When we were singing those songs, you know, I mean, I, I, mean, I, I felt like, God, this is... I mean, I, we've, it was wonderful. We were in Idaho. It was wonderful. We were in New York for weeks before that. But I felt like this is the place where the stone has been rolled away. It feels like Jesus standing there pleading with everybody. Don't you see? Yeah, I love him. I'll take care of him. But I'm here for you. And you're the one I really love. Martha. What was the result? You know, this is kind of the, what happened afterwards. Many of the Jews who had come to Mary and had seen these things, Jesus did, believed in him. But then it goes on to say that some of them went back to Jerusalem and they reported what happened. And they said from that day on, they plotted to put him to death. You know, and it's like where he said, you know, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you you would not have it you know and 
that was my burden. How he loves us. I felt the Lord wanting to roll away the stone and get us to believe him outside of our box. If we've created a legal box for ourselves or whatever we've done, he's here, you know, and he's standing at the grave and he's groaning. He's groaning over this whole situation. And it's not over the man in the grave. He's groaning for the living, you know. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Brother Kevin, I just can't help feeling the faith of the Word of God, but I also feel like that, that stone is our ego. That's the lid on our box. That's what turns our principles into graves. And that's what God wants to roll away. That's what he wants to just see tumble away. When you said that the stone was rolled away, I thought of how he said, I think it's Joshua, that this is where God began to roll the reproach out of Israel. Thank you, Jesus. Let it roll, God. That millstone of pride in our own perspective. That gravestone of ego and image. Let it roll in Jesus' name. Let it roll. You know, I want to say a couple things. I know the Lord spoke to me last night and this morning. and I don't want to put Brother Howard on the spot. But when you were ministering, I was loving your humor. But I've seen humor used for more than one reason. I've seen humor used to dull the sword of the truth. I've seen humor used to lower someone's expectation of a minister so that they wouldn't feel as duty-bound before God to be a faithful servant of His Word. I've seen humor used to make people like you or make you popular. But I've also seen humor used to... Poke the ego in the eye and say, God, I'm just your child. And that's what I was seeing as Brother Howard was sharing. You would be hard-pressed to find more intellectually capable men than some of those of our first generation who we've heard from today who could have done great great exploits of the flesh through the mind. And yet, accompanying that phenomenal gift was a childlikeness, the product of being delivered from ego. And they could laugh like nobody I've ever seen and tease each other to no end and move in the immediacy of the Spirit's prompting. And that's the stone that's got to roll out of our lives. Is that bloated, stinking ego of imagination of what we think we're supposed to be instead of just becoming God's kid. (laughs) Totally obedient, guided by His eye. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. 
And I, I want to say, I want to repeat what I said at a pivotal Wednesday meeting some weeks ago. I do not believe that we are susceptible to the particular attacks and snares that we have battled unless we lose three things. An openness that can be characterized as light, a love for the brothers that describes our exit from death and our entrance into the kingdom, and a regard for the anointing of the Holy Spirit. If we maintain those three things, Scripture assures us that we are safe. It even says things like, we will never stumble, and that the anointing is not a lie. It will not lead us astray. Light, love, anointing. Light, love, anointing. That's what we need. But the thing that prevents light, love, and anointing is this ugly ego. And if we imagine that we have consigned that to the dustbin of has-beens once we were converted and baptized, then we are delusional. I would say that the struggle to cast off the ego intensifies after conversion. It does not abate. It struck me with anointed prickery hearing the word of God from Hebrews 11 where he says, faith, 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 faith. And then he makes this statement. That therefore let us lay aside every weight. As if faith were this escape velocity to come out of the grave. As if faith were this traction to move forward. This ability to press on to know the Lord. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And if, as if the sin is this inhibition. As if inhibition is the antonym of faith. What is an inhibition? It says the, the weight that so easily inhibits. Inhibition. The sin that does so easily beset or entangle. And let us run. Does it occur to you that he is depicting faith there in that conclusive statement? Faith is freeing ourselves so that we can run with endurance, the race marked out for us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. And that sin is not just the particular sins that certainly are included, but it is the pride. Nothing snares and besets and inhibits us from running like pride like ego. I love the presence of God that we were feeling this morning. And I remembered one of the most rowdy praise seasons we had before my dad died 
And he called me up the next day and he said, I hope people know that what was happening before any word was spoken, spoken, what was happening in that meeting through praise, running the aisles, dancing in the spirit, people coming out of themselves, he said that was doing as much in heavenly places as everything else that happened in that meeting. He said it's like you could picture that in spiritual realms, whole cities are coming down because we're breaking the bonds that inhibit the people of God. God, I want you to set us free from the death of human thinking, of human pride, and set us free from the grave clothes of our stupid images. Amen. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. So God rejected wisdom because it didn't lead to relationship. The world through its wisdom did not come to know God. That was the point. So he said, let's use the foolishness of the message preach instead. As if somehow preaching were supposed to be a conduit into coming to know God. Do you follow how I'm reading that? I thought about a story this morning while talking with my brother Nathaniel. I think he reminded me of it. But there's a story my dad tells when he was an atheist, did not believe in God by any stretch. <laughs> he might have been called an intellectual, but he certainly was not called a believer or a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But he was a seeker. He had even gone on extensive fasts, seven-day fast, had an encounter with God, but didn't know it was Jesus yet. It was God in his wrath. It was not yet God in his son and his redemption. And uh, on one particular night, he goes to this event with one of his friends, John McKelvey, and, and they, they go to this event, and, uh, and they get 15 minutes into it. My dad stands up, and, and, and he says to John, he says, I'm leaving. Why does he say he's leaving? He said, this is just another ego trip. So they walk out the door, and they're walking down the, the street, and my dad turns to John, and he says, John... We've been everywhere. We've read everything. We've studied religion. We've studied philosophy. We've tried all the experiences of the day. He said, where is it, John? There was a silence as they continued walking down the street. And his friend, who knew how hostile my dad was to Christianity, he said, Blair, you know, Jesus healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, and raise the dead. And he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. What if he meant what he said? And, and in, the, in, the, in the very utterance of the words, the presence of God came down as an invisible cloud. And they just felt it so strong, it scared them. And there was complete silence as they made their way home. Unbeknownst to them, as they had gone to this dead-end meeting... Their good friend, Brother Denny, had walked out the door and said, Lord, I'm, I'm walking out this door and I'm not stopping until you lead me to the truth. And God 
led him to some people singing and he followed them into a church and meanwhile he's come home and John and dad are walking up. Dad walks in the door and Denny is sitting there with this enormous grin on his face. And he says, dad says, what's going on with you? (laughs) And he says, Blair, I've been to a place that's completely changed my life. And he says, well, tell me about it. What is it? He said, you're not going to want to know. And he said, "Uh, well, out with it, you know. And he said, it was a church. He said, well, what happened? What was it? And here was his response. I can't recall a word that was spoken, but the power coming from that man's preaching completely swallowed up my ego. And my dad said, when's the next meeting? Guys, if we want to step into what God is calling us to, if we want to become the fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers and ministers and leaders and people of God, we have got to give ourselves to a power that completely swallows up our ego. You know, ego thrives in the carnality of human rationalism. Ego just flourishes like a bacteria in the pride of human intellect. But it is not a mistake that God brought such intellectually capable men through the childlike experience of Pentecost. And there's no other way (laughs) There's no other entrance. Being filled with the Holy Spirit, being completely turned inside out is not a unique anomaly that attaches to some guys from the 60s. It is the way, the truth, and the life. That's the whole point. And if we are getting sucked into the wrong dynamics, it's because we're getting puffed up here instead of getting built up here isn't that what Paul says we know that we all possess knowledge what a statement we know that we all possess knowledge knowledge puffs up but love builds up knowledge inflates but love creates it builds up if anyone supposes that he knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Certainty that we know is the proof that we don't know. Does that make sense? Certainty that we know is the evidence that we don't know. Because that certainty is either going to be a relational confidence in God, who is the knower, or it's going to be this infatuation, this persuasion of the carnal mind. God wants to make us those people who can speak His power, not the fruit of the tree of knowledge that grows between our ears. Paul says, 
my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words of human wisdom, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And why did he say this? So that your faith would not rest in man, but in the power of God. Paul said, if I get up there and I teach in a certain way and I talk in a certain way and I preach in a certain way, they're going to sit there and it's just going to itch and scratch and titillate the, all the branches of the carnal mind of the tree of knowledge growing between their ears. And we're going to have a kind of covenant of discussion and intelligence and wow, aren't we all in this together? But then when I walk out, they're going to be that much more sure of the carnal mind. They're going to be that much more secure, have that much more faith in man. So he says, I'm not going to do that. I am going to bring a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So that they can say, I don't, I don't remember a word he said, but the message completely swallowed up my ego. That is our ambition. That is our goal. Our goal is not to figure things out. Our goal is to become a living demonstration of the Spirit and power. Nothing less and nothing more. Is that what you want? Is that what you're praying for when you pray for a message? Are you saying, God, get a hold of me, take me outside myself? You know, it's scary. It's scary to yield yourself to the power of another being. And that's why so few people do it. That's why so many people think that dignity and respect is being unmoved by God. And they don't realize it's just being in the grave of Lazarus. It's just being in the grave of human pride. Amen. Oh, Jesus. My dad used to tell us, you need to pray that the burden of the Lord burns inside of you until it shakes you like you're in a paint mixer. Amen. Shakes you like you're in a paint mixer. You say, oh, that person is possessed. Well, if it's an evil spirit, that's highly problematic. But if it's the spirit of God, that's dangerous, but it's life. Is that what you want? You want to be possessed? Or do you want possession of God? You know, I used to, I used to wonder, not in a, in a judgmental way, but in a God help me understand this way. And I thought about it again in the Christmas program. I was listening to Brother Josiah sing, O Holy Night. And it's not sentimentality for me. It's not the spirit of Christmas for me. It's the power of God. And I, I watched him and I could feel the tension in his old body, mind, and posture as he's preparing to make that complete offering. And I said, God, why do we feel the Holy Ghost so strong when somebody sings like that? Is it just the manipulation of our emotions? The combination of notes with words and titillation of our delusional and susceptible emotions? And the answer is no. No, it is not. 
from Abel to Noah to Abraham to Elijah, God has been looking on the sacrifices that worshipers made to seek an audience with his presence. And there is a way of giving that is performance. Performance is a demonstration of yourself for the benefit and praise of others. But there is this invisible threshold where you cross out of performance and you slip into this degree of sacrifice and offering that is categorically unfit for any mortal person. But it is worthy of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And that's where performance becomes sacrifice. Where you slip into that place of weakness wherein his power is made perfect. And God is looking to smile on that sacrifice. On that offering. There is power in extremity. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. And so often... We think of doing, giving to God our best. And we say that, and that's meaningful on one level. But we think of giving to God our best. And so we say, if I, if I give more, if I'm more vulnerable, if I'm more transparent, if I'm more possessed by God, that's not my best. My best is more quaffed. My best is more thoughtful. My best is more controlled and contemplative and stupid and grave-clothed and human and proud and egotistical. God does not want your best. He wants your all. He wants your all. Amen. And that's, that's the place that you feel when there's singing or when there's preaching and someone is giving something and and then you feel like, oh God, I want to give everything. I want to hold nothing back. Thank you, Jesus. It's just a little, little further, you know, just a little beyond the flesh. And the flesh says, oh, no, 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 you don't have to do that. See, you came this far and everybody was blessed. See, you went this far and, and it was good enough. And you walked away and you felt like, amen. But if there was anything left, not left on the altar, but left inside, then it wasn't a complete sacrifice. The Bible says, offer yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable form of worship. What are you going to take home with you that you should have put on the altar even in this meeting? What am I going to hold in reserve? What fear, what gift, what strength, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, with all thy strength. Everything. There's a degree of sacrifice that we're scared of. But you see, if you sacrifice right up into the threshold, but you never cross it, then all you're doing is depleting yourself. Because the fire of God does not come down on that sacrifice. But when you make a complete sacrifice and there's nothing in reserve, then the fire of God comes down and you receive from Him a thousand times more than you gave. And that's where you go from strength to strength, from faith to faith, from glory to glory, and you're changed. You're adding to your faith. You're adding to your virtue. You're adding to your character. 
Otherwise, you're just depleting yourself and you feel weaker and less. That's how you burn out. That's how you get discouraged. So there's power not in the crescendo, but in the extremity. And if Brother Josiah could sing that song with competence, you would not. He's very competent. Don't take that wrong. But if he could sing it without us feeling the totality of that sacrifice, you would not feel the presence of God because you would say, this man who was made for the glory of God is not giving him everything that he has to give. He's on top of the sacrifice, looking down at himself, offering from his strength instead of offering everything to the King of kings and Lord of lords. It doesn't have to be an ugly thing. It doesn't have to be a fearful thing. It can be with a smile and joy. But it says, God, you're worthy to the only one who's worthy to receive the honor and the glory, the power and the praise. I'm giving it all, holding nothing back. And that's what's been unique about this fellowship is a bunch of people who felt like everything was the least God deserved. Amen. And you want your words and you want your offerings to take on power. You're going to have to come to the extremity. Because that's where the power is. It's like I've seen whole books called Words from the Cross. Hmm. Words from the Cross. What did Jesus say from the cross? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Son, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And about four other phrases that he uttered from the cross. Today you will be with me in paradise. And what is it about, what is it about those words that rise to the level that we all know them, that we all feel them, that they break through even to centurions who weep and say, surely this was the Son of God, that they still live in as poignant darts in the minds of Christians 2,000 years later because they were spoken in the total sacrifice. It was power in the extremity. Wasn't it? Amen. But God has words for you to speak from your cross. If you want your words, if you want your ministry, if you want your service, if you want your worship to rise above the common, the distracted, the unanointed, then you're going to have to climb up on the cross and offer an acceptable sacrifice, a complete sacrifice, and in the extremity, God's going to meet you. Don't hear a word from anyone that does not exemplify the power of God that Paul was marked for. Don't listen to a word of correction, a word of concern. Don't let anyone take any place in the church that is not exemplified by power perfected in weakness. You're being led astray. People come and find criticisms and problems. People come from without and try to do that in order to give us, give us an impression of how gifted they are. They're just in search of their own self-validation. We are not interested and neither is God. People do it from within. Messiah is in search of a problem, in search of someone to save. It's just the flesh. It's just another ego trip. But if, if you're on the cross and you're trembling and shaking 
and you're in prayer and you're in vulnerability and, and you're letting your heart be seen and then you're saying something to us, we're going to hear it. We're going to hear your words from the cross. And that's what I felt last week as Brother Abraham was ministering to us. Somebody would say, it was great, but it was so vulnerable. I would say, no, it was great because it was so vulnerable. Are you willing to be naked? Are you willing to be vulnerable? Can we tell the Lord yes, brothers and sisters? Can we tell Him yes? Can we tell Him holding nothing back? No fears, no images. I'm not afraid of looking the fool. I'm afraid of being the fool by holding anything in reserve from the one who's, who's worthy to receive everything. Hallelujah. Amen. You think, you think you've blown it. You think you're rejected. You think you're broken. Yes, you are. And that's the place God's been waiting for. There's more power and potential for you right there in that spot than there's ever been in your strength of the flesh. Amen. What we fear is really our opportunity. There's just the devil telling us, making us afraid of what we should be thankful for. I think of, of the story of Brother Perry McAllister. If anybody ever exhibited weakness in the flesh, it was Brother Perry. But he had strength in the spirit. And I remember seeing him as a child, seeing him go through the reductions of Lou Gehrig's disease. And seeing that just shrink him and whittle him down to, to someone who could barely move. And, and then I remember hearing what he spoke at the very end of his life, his, his last words. Tell the devil he's a liar. Those were words from the cross. That was power at the extremity. You see, you can stand up in a meeting and say, tell the devil he's a liar. Doesn't cost you anything. But what can you give God that costs you something? You see, when, when Brother Perry is, is there and he, he can no longer even have the strength to take a breath, much less squeeze a syllable from his mouth, and in his last breath he says, tell the devil he's a liar. We say, oh God. And it sticks with us for the rest of our lives. You want to you wanna have an impact? <laughs> God, help us to go to the cross. God, help us to embrace weakness. God, help us to be like Paul and say, I will rather glory in my weakness. If I am beside myself, he says, it is for Christ's sake. What does it mean to be beside yourself? <laughs> Standing next to yourself? It means to escape the grave clothes. There are some of us, we watch the worship and we enter in on some level, but you don't feel what you want to feel because you don't make an acceptable sacrifice. As somebody is standing right next to you and they're getting a touch from God, you say, but I'm not feeling that. You know, scientists came out with something recently, past couple decades, and they, they came out with this whole study on mirror neurons. Have you ever heard of these? Mirror neurons. Oh, yes. Wow. And what, was, what were the mirror neurons? It showed that there are these neurons in our minds that whenever somebody does something in our vision, in our sight, whenever they do something like pick up an instrument, we have the same feeling as if we picked up the instrument. 
If they take a piece of food to their mouth, we have all of the, the release in our brain as if that food were brought to our mouth. And they say that this is the, the phenomenal power of imitation. Follow me as I follow Christ. Consider those who spoke the word of God to you, considering the outcome of their conduct, imitate their faith. There are mirror neurons. There is potential in your brain. And some of you, you watch people yield to the Spirit, and there's a voice inside of you that says, man, I wish I could have that. But you don't even acknowledge it to yourself, because then you would have to say, why don't I? Because I'm chock full of stinking pride. And I can name it a thousand things and even pick the names from the Bible, but it's just complacent, smug pride. I don't want to be a child in the eyes of God. I want to be a master. I want to be Nicodemus. I don't want to be Mary at the feet of Jesus. But when you see someone around you getting the blessing, there's a mirror neuron going off in your brain saying, I can have that too. Just like the woman said, so she was saying to herself, if only I touch the hem of his garment, I will be changed. God help us. God help us. Amen. You want to feel more in your praise, then give more. You want to feel more in your testimony, then give more. You want to feel more in your preaching, then give more. Hold nothing in reserve. I'm going to read you a little scripture. Be gracious to me, O God, be gracious to me. For my soul takes refuge in you, and in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God Most High, to God who accomplishes all things for me. That's grace. He will send from heaven and save me. Pretty sure, isn't he? He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who tramples on me. God will send forth his loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongues are sharp as swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens and let your glory be over all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast, he repeats it. I will sing. I will sing praises. Awake, my glory. Awake, my harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O God, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your loving kindness is, greater to the, is great to the heavens and your truth to the clouds. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let your glory fill the earth. And this was written by David while he hid in the cave from Absalom. That's what it sounds like when words come from the cross. That's what it sounds like when power is perfected in weakness, when you find that new grace at the extremity of a total offering. Hallelujah.
blue and walk out of this tomb. You're buried underneath the lies that you believe. Safe and sound, stuck in the ground, too lost to be found. You're just asleep, and it's time to leave. So come on and rise up, take a breath, you're alive now. Can't you hear the voice of Jesus calling us out from the grave like Lazarus? You're brand new, the power of death couldn't hold you. Can't you hear the voice of Jesus calling us out from the grave like Oh, he's calling us to walk out of the dark. 